I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. In today's reading, we'll be looking at Ezekiel chapters 44 and 45. Now, there's something we need to be looking for in these two chapters. Uh, We'll be seeing a reference to the prince along the way. And let me just point out that you'll see from the reading that this prince cannot be the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So just pay attention to that as we read. Chapter 44, verse 1. Then he brought me back the way of the gate of the outward sanctuary, which looked toward the east, and it was shut. Then said the Lord unto me, This gate shall be shut. It shall not be open, and no man shall enter in by it, because the Lord, the God of Israel, hath entered in by it. Therefore it shall be shut. It is for the prince. The prince, he shall sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the porch of that gate, and shall go out by the way of the same. Then brought he me the way of the north gate before the house, and I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. That fell upon my face. And the Lord said unto me, Son of man, mark well, and behold with thine eyes, and hear with thine ears all that I say unto thee concerning all the ordinances of the house of the Lord, and all the laws thereof. And mark well, entering in of the house, with every going forth of the sanctuary. And thou shalt say to the rebellious, even to the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, O ye house of Israel, let it suffice you of all your abomination, and that ye have brought to my sanctuary strangers, uncircumcised in heart, and uncircumcised in flesh, to be my sanctuary, to pollute it, even my house, when ye offer my bread, the fat and the blood, and they have broken my covenant because of all your abominations. And ye have not kept the charge of my holy things, but ye have set keepers of my charge in my sanctuary for yourselves. Thus saith the Lord, No stranger, uncircumcised in heart, nor uncircumcised in flesh, shall enter into my sanctuary of any stranger that is among the children of Israel. And the Levites are gone away from me when Israel went astray, which went astray away from me after their idols. They shall even bear their iniquity. Yet... They shall be ministers in my sanctuary, having charge at the gates of the house and ministering to the house. They shall slay the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people, and they shall stand before them to minister unto them. Because they ministered unto them before their idols and caused the house of Israel to fall into iniquity, therefore have I lifted up my hand against them, saith the Lord God, and they shall bear their iniquity. And they shall not come near unto me to do the office of a priest unto me, nor to come near to any of my holy things in the most holy place, that they shall bear their shame and their abomination which they have committed. But I will make them keepers of the charge of the house for all the service thereof and for all that shall be done therein. Now you notice that only the prince will use this gate referenced here. Who is this prince in chapters 44, 45, 46, and again in 48? Well, after carefully examining this issue over a long period of time, here's what I've decided. And other commentators have come to the very same conclusion. 
This prince is not the Messiah. Can't be. You will see in these last four chapters obvious reasons why this prince is not a reference to Christ and can't possibly be. For starters, consider this. This prince makes a sin offering for himself in chapter 45, verse 22. We're going to see that in a few moments. If the prince were Jesus Christ, then he, the Messiah, would need cleansing from sin. But we know that Jesus Christ is sinless. Then in Ezekiel 46, verse 16, we'll see that the prince may have sons. Then the prince may pass on an inheritance. This, too, argues against the identity of this prince being the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So you ask, who's the prince? Well, here's the deal. Ezekiel tells us earlier that it will be David himself. I mean, he says the very words. If you look at Ezekiel 34, 23, and 24, and Ezekiel 37, verses 24 and 25, there he is, David. Now, I've written an article called King David's Role in the Millennium. It's located in the center box on the main page of BibleTrack.org. Read that, and you'll see that Ezekiel wasn't the only one who prophesied that David himself would be in the millennium. Hosea also prophesied it. Jeremiah prophesied it. And then we have these clear references here in the book of Ezekiel. So you have to conclude that David and Jesus as the Messiah are both going to be present right here on earth during the millennium. Now you'll see in the following chapters that this prince is entirely human. Well, I mean... Here's a tough question, but can you say resurrected King David? However, many scholars hold to the notion that a mention of David as a millennial leader is actually a reference to a descendant of David. Apparently, though Ezekiel's prophecy here envisioned David or a descendant as the civil leader under the authority of the Messiah. Very few commentators even acknowledge the fact that this prince is not a reference to the Messiah, but it's clear here that it's not. Most commentators, however, gloss over the clear references to David and these issues that are raised here regarding the prince and pay very little attention to the subject. Now, I realize I'm skipping ahead to some readings on other days here when I do this, but let me summarize regarding this prince uh, by saying the following. First of all, we see here that the prince will be a leader within Israel in the Messianic era. He will be fully human, and we know that because he makes a sin offering for himself in Ezekiel 45.22, and he may have descendants, which we see in Ezekiel 46.16. He will also own a tribal-sized plot of land encompassing the temple grounds, as seen in Ezekiel 48, verses 21 and 22. He will have a unique relationship with regard to the temple where he will be performing some priestly functions. We see that in Ezekiel 45, verses 16 and 17, and verse 22. And also again in Ezekiel 46, verses 4 and 12. So it's quite clear that Ezekiel saw a leader in addition to the Messiah, Jesus, who will serve in the leadership capacity. It can only be surmised that there will be a Messiah, Jesus, during the millennium with David, or possibly a descendant of David, serving under him. Now, I know that may be different from what you've heard and been taught in the past, but I ask you to study the passage and tell me what other conclusion can possibly come to.
It's therefore clear that Ezekiel saw a leader in addition to the Messiah. Then in verses 6 to 14, we get a special rebuke for the past practices of Israel and that they allowed pagans and pagan worship to take place right there in the previous temple. Here we have some very specific instructions designed to keep that from happening again. Remember, during the millennium, a host of Gentile people will be born who will not choose to partake of the salvation in Christ. These are those strangers spoken of here in this passage. We also notice a narrowing of the Levitical priesthood. Only those of a particular lineage, that of Zadok, are allowed to serve as actual priests. The others will do temple maintenance. This isn't really unique to the millennium. The prophetic decree was actually issued back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 27 to 36. That was back when Eli's boys were killed by God, if you'll recall. We don't see its implementation, actually, until Solomon becomes king in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 27 and 35. That's when the priesthood is actually narrowed to only the descendants of Zadok, eliminating the descendants of Abiathar from that point forward. Technically, however, Abiathar's ancestors were to have already been eliminated from serving as priests all the way back to Numbers chapter 25, verses 11 through 13. Right there it was decreed that the priest from that time forward would come only from the line of Aaron's grandson, Phinehas. Not even Eli in 1 Samuel was a descendant of Phinehas. That prophecy took a long time before fulfillment, but it was fulfilled. Well, those prophetic restrictions continue right on into the millennium. Now in chapter 44, verses 15 to 31, we see some very special instructions for these priests. Verse 15, But the priests, the Levites, the sons of Zadok, that kept the charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near to me to minister unto me, and they shall stand before me to offer unto me the fat and the blood, saith the Lord God. They shall enter into my sanctuary, and they shall come near to my table to minister unto me, and they shall keep my charge. And it shall come to pass that when they enter in at the gates of the inner court, they should be clothed with linen garments, and no wool shall come upon them, whilst they minister in the gates of the inner court and within. They shall have linen bonnets upon their heads, and shall have linen breeches upon their loins, and they shall not gird themselves with anything that causeth sweat. And when they go forth into the utter court, even into the court to the people, they shall put off their garments wherein they ministered, and lay them in the holy chambers, and they shall put on other garments, and they shall not sanctify the people with their garments. Neither shall they have their heads shaved, nor suffer their locks to grow long. They shall only pull their heads. Neither shall any priest drink wine when they enter into the inner court. Neither shall they take for their wives a widow, nor her that is put away. But they shall take maidens of the seed of the house of Israel, or a widow that had a priest before. And they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the profane, and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. And in controversy they shall stand in judgment, and they shall judge it according to my judgments, and they shall keep my laws and my statutes and all mine assemblies, and they shall hallow my Sabbaths. And they shall come at no dead person to defile themselves, but for father or for mother or for son or for daughter, for brother or for sister that hath no husband, they may defile themselves. 
And after that he is cleansed, they shall reckon unto him seven days. And the day that he goeth into the sanctuary, into the inner court, to minister in the sanctuary, he shall offer his sin offering, saith the Lord God. And it shall be unto them for an inheritance. I am their inheritance, and they shall give them no possession in Israel. I am their possession. They shall eat the meat offering, and the sin offering, and the trespass offering, and every dedicated thing in Israel shall be theirs. And the first of all the firstfruits of all things, and every oblation of all, every sort of your oblations shall be the priest. He shall also give unto the priest the first of your dome, that he may cause the blessing to rest in thine house. The priest shall not eat anything that is dead of itself or torn, whether it be fowl or beast. We see the service requirements for these priests outlined here in this passage. These millennial priests will still be expected to present themselves before the people as examples of righteous living. Specific instructions for doing so are listed here. There is a teaching ministry required of these priests as well. We see that in verse 23. And they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the profane and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. We see in verse 24 that these priests will have a hand in judging during the millennium and they'll be living off of the provisions from the people that they serve. One can't help but notice the similarities of the activities of these millennial priests to those activities of the Aaronic priests as outlined back in Leviticus chapters 1 through 7. Many of the specifications are exactly the same or very similar. Of course, back then those sacrifices were anticipating the day when sins would once and for all be atoned for. Whereas we conclude that these millennial sacrifices will serve as a memorial of what Jesus has done for the entire world. In chapter 45, we come to some zoning issues for the millennium. Verse 1. Moreover, when you shall divide by lot the land for inheritance, you shall offer an oblation to the Lord and holy portion of the land. The length shall be the length of five and twenty thousand reeds, and the breadth shall be ten thousand. This shall be holy in all the borders thereof round about. Of this there shall be for the sanctuary five hundred in length with five hundred in breadth, square round about, and fifty cubits round about for the suburb thereof. And in this measure shalt thou measure the length of five and twenty thousand, and the breadth of ten thousand. And it shall be the sanctuary and the most holy place. The holy portion of the land shall be for the priests, the ministers of the sanctuary, which shall come near to minister unto the Lord. And it shall be a place for their houses and an holy place for the sanctuary. And the five and twenty thousand of length and the ten thousand of breadth shall also the Levites, the ministers of the house, have for themselves for possession for twenty chambers. And he shall appoint the possession of the city five thousand broad, and five and twenty thousand long, over against the oblation of the holy portion, it shall be for the whole house of Israel. And a portion shall be for the prince on the one side, and on the other side of the oblation of the holy portion, and of the possession of the city, for the oblation of the holy portion, and before the possession of the city, from the west side westward, and from the east side eastward, and the length shall be over against one of the portions from the west border unto the east border. In the land shall be his possession in Israel, and my princes shall no more oppress my people, and at the rest of the land shall they give to the house of Israel according to their tribes. 
Now, here are some additional zoning issues being settled for the Holy District round about the temple grounds. There's a piece of property about six miles by eight miles that surrounds the temple. We see it here in this passage. And the priests surround the temple on this land. Additionally, the prince's area extends beyond this, both to the east and to the west, another eight miles or so. So then the sacrificing begins in chapter 45, verse 9. Thus saith the Lord God, Let it suffice you, O princes of Israel, remove violence and spoil, and execute judgment and justice. Take away your exactions from my people, saith the Lord God. He shall have just balances, and a just ephah, and a just bath. The ephah and the bath shall be of one measure, that the bath may contain the tenth part of an homer, and the ephah, the tenth part of an homer, the measure thereof shall be after the homer. And the shekels shall be twenty garaz, twenty shekels, five and twenty shekels, fifteen shekels shall be your maneh. This is the oblation that ye shall offer, the sixth part of the ephah of an homer of wheat, and ye shall give the sixth part of the ephah of an homer of barley. Concerning the ordinance of oil, the bath of oil, ye shall offer the tenth part of a bath out of the core which is an homer of ten baths, for ten baths are in homer, and one lamb out of the flock, out of two hundred, out of the fat pastures of Israel, for meat offering, and for a burnt offering, and for a peace offering, and make reconciliation for them, saith the Lord God. All the people of the land shall give this oblation for the prince in Israel, and it shall be the prince's part to give burnt offerings, and meat offerings, and drink offerings, in the feast, and in the new moons, and in the Sabbaths, and in all solemnities of the house of Israel. He shall prepare for the sin offering, and the meat offering, and the burnt offering, and the peace offerings, to make reconciliation for the house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord God, In the first month, and the first day of the month, thou shalt take a young bullock without blemish, and cleanse the sanctuary. And the priest shall take of the blood of the sin offering, and put it upon the post of the house, and upon the four corners of the settle of the altar, and upon the post of the gate at the inner court. And so thou shalt do the seventh day of the month for every one that erreth, and for them that is simple, so shall ye reconcile the house. In the first month and the fourteenth day of the month ye shall have the Passover, a feast of seven days, unleavened bread shall be eaten. And upon that day shall the prince prepare for himself and for all the people of the land a bullock for a sin offering. And seven days of the feast he shall prepare a burnt offering to the Lord, seven bullocks and seven rams without blemish daily the seven days, and a kid of the goats daily for a sin offering. And he shall prepare a meat offering for an ephah for a bullock and an ephah for a ram, and an hen of oil for an ephah. In the seventh month and the fifteenth day of the month shall he do the like in the feast of the seven days, according to the sin offering, according to the burnt offering, and according to the meat offering, and according to the oil. Even with Jesus as the Messiah during the millennium, sacrificing absolutely, positively will resume. We see that explanation in the notes for Ezekiel chapter 43. These sacrifices will be reflective of the finished work of Christ on the cross. However, keep in mind, the millennium is not a sin-free period. Even though Satan is bound for the entire period of the millennium, according to Revelation 20, verses 2 and 3, it's not Satan that causes people to sin. It's actually the presence of the Adamic nature that everyone is born with. 
the people who will populate the millennium are just regular old folks like you and me who enter in because they had a faith relationship with Christ at the end of the tribulation. Nothing is done between the last day of the tribulation and the first day of the millennium to eradicate the, in, the Adamic nature out of these people, these earth dwellers. Moreover, these people will bear children who must choose for themselves whether or not they will receive Christ as their Savior. Therefore, the offerings and sacrifices in these verses characterize the millennium as Jewish in nature, with the presence of a sinless Messiah flawlessly overseeing the requirements of everything that's done. It should be noted, however, that the rebellion that takes place when Satan gathers the unregenerate people to assist him is made up only of Gentile people, according to Revelation chapter 20, verse 8. Don't see any Jewish people there at all. Incidentally, we should point out that the Passover feast will be observed, we see that in verses 21 to 24, during the millennium, just as it was in the Old Testament. It'll be complete with a lamb and unleavened bread for seven days. Then in the seventh month, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, will be celebrated. We saw that at the end of the chapter as well, in the seventh month, verse 25. So for more information on these festivals, you can look at the article that I've written on the festivals on the main page of BibleTrack.org and to see the stipulations and the timing of those festivals. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.BibleTrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walton.